Glad to have you watching and worshiping with us as we wrap up Be My Valentine with a talk called The Makings of a Great Marriage. The song says, here and now, I promise to love faithfully. You're all I need. Here and now, I vow to be one with thee. Your love is all I need. And can I tell you, I really believe that most marriages begin with this kind of thinking. They have this kind of outlook that, that, that man, our marriage is going to, to work and I, I love you and we're going to be in love the rest of our life. I believe that most marriages begin with this, this kind of positive thinking towards their marriage. And yet, something happens to a lot of marriages. About six months into it, a year into it, two years into it, ten years into it, twenty years into it, something, something happens. I mean, it, it, it started off so, so wonderfully. There was the engagement ring, and then there was the wedding ring, and then it turned into suffering. <laughs> something went wrong. Something went out of whack. It's no longer here and now I promise to love faithfully. It's here and now I promise alimony because I'm gone and I'm leaving and it didn't work. And what I want to talk to you today about is the makings of a great marriage. Here's what I know. No matter how long you've been married, whether it's been one month, two months, a year, 10 years, 50 years, there's all room for us to improve. And I also want to talk to our singles because many of our singles in the place today, one day you will get married. And so listen carefully, take some notes because I want to help set you, your future marriage up for success. Let's look at the makings of a great marriage. Three points today. You can follow along with me in your bulletin and fill in the blanks. Point one is focus on your spouse's needs. Focus on your spouse's needs. You see, bad marriages are driven by selfishness. When a marriage is falling apart, you can be sure that one or both people are focused on themselves. It's all about me, myself, and I. And selfishness, that's what it's all about. Selfishness is just all about me. But here's what I want you to grasp. Great God-honoring marriages happen because both the man and the woman focus on meeting each other's needs. Let's get a scriptural foundation for this today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 33, as the Apostle Paul writes this to the church at Corinth as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, but a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. Now, I want you to notice that. He thinks about how to please his wife, not just himself. It's not all about me, myself, and I, a godly great marriage is a husband is focused on how to please his wife. Verse 34 says his interests are divided. Now, let me explain this to you. It may sound like a little negative under, uh, undertone there by the Apostle Paul, but what he's talking about in this portion of Scripture, he said, hey, singles, if you're single and, and you can stay that way, man, you ought to do that. Because you can serve the Lord wholeheartedly, no distractions, just give your full attention to the Lord. And so that's what he's referring to. That's why, but he says, if you get married, that there's going to be this, this, this divided attention between your spouse and your family and the Lord. So it goes on to say, in the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted just wholeheartedly to the Lord and holy in body and spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities. And notice this, and how to please her 
husband. A married woman, it's not about me, all about me, myself, and I. It's about how can I please my husband. I want you to notice that in a great marriage, the husband is focused on meeting his wife's needs, and the wife is focused on meeting her husband's needs. The Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 4. He says, each of you, that includes you, that includes me, each of you should look not only to your own interest. Can I tell you, when a marriage begins to struggle, you know what happens is they're all focused on themselves. They're only focused on their own interests, on their own wants, on their own desires, on their own happiness. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, listen, you should not just look only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Friends, can I tell you, it's the calling on every follower of Christ to look not only to your own interest, but also to look to the interest of others. It's the calling on every husband, every man of God, not just to look to your own interest, but to look to your wife's interest as well. It's the calling on every woman of God, every wife, not just to look to your own interest, but to look also to the interest of your husband. It's key to a great marriage. And what I want to do is just kind of break this down for you a little bit. Let me give you a little insight here, another little nugget or another key. And that's, you got to learn your spouse. You've got to learn your spouse. If you're going to look after their interest, if, if you're going to do what Paul says in Corinthians, if you're going to please your wife or please your husband, you've got to learn your spouse. Question, question, ponder this with me. What are your spouse's needs or interests? Couples that are engaged, what is your fiancés? What are their needs? What, 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 what are their interests? What makes your spouse happy? Some of you would say, well, I don't know. Some would say, I think, I think. But listen, to meet your spouse's needs, you first got to know what the needs are. You got to learn your spouse. You got to know what makes them happy, what makes them tick. There's a book that I recommend to every married couple I recommend to our engaged couples to read this so that you can prepare for a healthy, godly, God-honoring marriage. I recommend the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. If you've never read that book, I encourage you to read that book. Every married couple, The, the Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And basically what he talks about in this book is that every person has a love language. Your spouse, understand this, your spouse has a love language. They do have needs. They do have interests. They do have things that make them happy. And you have to learn your spouse. And let me just quickly give you an overview of the five love languages that Gary talks about in his book. The first love language is words of affirmation. That's a love language. For some of you, your spouse needs words of affirmation. That, that, that would be encouraging words, kind words. I love you. You mean the world to me. You're awesome. I'm so glad I married you. And for, for some people, that's their love language. That makes them tick. That makes them happy. A, a second love language that Gary talks about in the book is, is quality time. That's when you give your spouse undivided attention. You give them focused attention. Well, you have quality conversation. I'm talking about quality conversation. Now, that's not sitting in front of the TV watching the thunder play with your spouse. Girl, I love spending time with you. Let's eat some popcorn and watch the thunder. That's not quality time. It's when you have one-on-one focused time and you share your dreams, your hurts, your pains, your, your hopes, your desires. 
It's that, it's that quality time. The, the, the third love language is receiving gifts. Some of you, your spouse, what makes them tick, what makes them happy, what lights their fire is when you give them a gift. And that, that, that speaks love to them. I know what some people are thinking. Some of you ladies say, amen. I can't wait to go to the mall after church today, preach pastor. And, and that's not what I'm talking about. It can be small gifts. It can be little gifts. But for your spouse, it can be a handmade gift. But that, that makes them happy. That affirms them. That makes them feel loved. Number four, the, the fourth love language that he talks about in his book, because, man, we got to know our spouse. we gotta, we got to meet their interests. we got to please them, but we have to learn them. The fourth one is acts of service, acts of service. And that would be some people's love languages when their spouse does something for them, or it may be uh, cleaning the house or fixing uh, something that's been broken around the house. It may be mowing the yard. It may be having dinner or cooking dinner. It may be the laundry being cleaned. For, and that, that's how they're wired. That, that speaks love to that type of person. That's their love language. The, the fifth love language is physical touch, physical touch. And that, for some of you, your spouse, they need that. That makes them happy. They, that, that, that fills them up. That, that makes them feel loved when you hold their hand. Or maybe you put a hand on their knee while you're watching TV or watching the movie. Or, or maybe you hold them close and wrap your arm around them and just love on them. Or walking in public and just grab their hand and hold, hold their hand. That, that communicates. That, that, that lights their fire. And here's what you have to grasp now. Your spouse's love language is probably different than yours. And oftentimes in marriage, what we try to do is we try to meet our spouse's needs by, by, by using our own love language. We think that if we, we, do, we do what we like, that that'll meet their needs. But that's not the case always. You have to figure out your, your, your spouse, what, what, what are their interests, what, what lights their fire, what, what makes them happy. You see, for Tiffany, her, her top love language is quality time. That's what my, my wife needs. She wants to have a connection. She wants to talk one-on-one undivided attention, focused on her, where we share our dreams and hopes and pains and things we're dealing with. So that, that, that makes her feel connected. That, that, that feeds her. That, that's her love language. And how many know sometimes us men have to work on that? Huh? Get home from work. How's your day? Good. Anything exciting happen? No. But we got to take time for my wife. She needs that connection. And we, we try to do that. We sit around the dental table oftentimes and send the kids out to play and, and connect. We go on dates where we just have focused time on one another because that's one of her top love languages. My, my wife, her second love language would be words of affirmation. And that, that, that fills her up. That makes her feel affirmed. That makes her feel loved. And I constantly tell my wife I love her on a daily basis. Usually every time I leave home, I Say, I love you. I text you. You're beautiful to me. You mean the world to me. I'm so glad to be married to you. You're such an awesome mom. And I just, I continually just praise her with words of affirmation because that's one of her top love languages. Now, for me, my, my top love language is totally different than Tiffany's. She can't, she can't minister to me in the same way that I minister to her because my top love language is acts of service. I'm just real simple. That's what, what makes me happy. If my underwear are clean, <laughs> some clothes to wear. Bologna sandwich on the table when I get to the house. I'm happy. Thank you, Jesus. Good day. I get up in the morning. I don't have no clean underwear. I don't feel loved. Where my underwear, baby? I don't have no underwear. Don't feel loved. Because that's just, it's, it's, it's the way that I'm wired. Now, now for me, my second is, is, is quality time. So that, that's, I, I, I need to spend time with my wife, unfocused attention. 
quality time that we can talk and communicate. That, that lights my fire and, and that, that fills me up. Now, now a, clo- a close third, I wasn't for sure if it was a close third, but it is. A close third is physical touch. Uh, actually, I was talking to my wife this week, and, and uh, we were talking about this. And actually, when I, I read in the book, it said that sex was a part of physical touch. I go, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a close second. It's, it's a close second. I even told my wife, I texted her, I said, baby, let me just re- let me, let me rephrase this. Physical touch included sex, and it's a close second. She could text back, I know, I know, I know, Herbert. You're not, I already know. You got to learn your spouse. You got to learn your spouse. You got to know what makes your spouse tick. Let me give you a second insight on this. Learn your spouse, number two, is this. Keep your spouse's love tank full. Hear me. Keep your spouse's love tank full. A marriage is a lot like a car. A car runs smoothly only if there's gas in the tank. If there's not gas in the tank, a car does not run efficiently. It does not run smoothly. It won't run at all. And I know this from my own life. It was, I don't know, six months, eight months ago or so, I was driving my family to go eat at a restaurant, and we were about, oh, about a mile from home or so, a little less than a mile from home, and the car stopped. And I thought, oh, man, what's the issue? And tried to start, and wouldn't start. And we were close to the gas being out. The light was on, but I thought we had enough to make it to the gas station before we went to eat, and we didn't. And how many know, man, you've got your whole family. It was, in that day, it was really cold outside. It was cold outside. And, you know, I'm sitting there, you know, how you try to keep your cool points, you know, people driving down the street, you, you know, trying to keep cool points. I got this thing under control. I'm driving by, it's kind of slowing up, you know. You know, but we needed some help. <laughs> we're stranded. Thank God we were close to home. My wife called our neighbor and our neighbor was gracious to bring us some gas they had in a, in a gas tank, in, 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 a, in a jug, and we were able to fill the car with some gas and get to the gas station. And here, here's what I told myself. This, will ne- this is not going to happen again. I am not letting this happen again. Well, two months ago, um, I mean, it's the whole time this happened in my life, I promise. <laughs> These two times. Two months ago, on a Friday, my day off, I was driving to school to pick up Cade at school. And so I was driving, and I thought, you know what? I mean, I know my car. I mean, you know, you know, you know your car. You've been driving it for two, three, four years. You know your car. And I know my car does not need gas yet. Now, it's getting close, but I know the light's not even on, and I know how this car runs. And for some reason, my car changed. And it decided that day it needed gas right now. And I'm driving, and I'm a couple of miles away from Kate's school, and my car just stops. And I'm thinking, no, Lord, no. No, no, and I try to start it up and it won't start. I'm already, I got to get there. It's running late to get them picked up from school. Please start, it doesn't. And so I had to humble myself. Had to pick up the phone, call my wife. <laughs> God help me. <laughs> I know she's going to think I'm an idiot. <laughs> Baby, I ran out of gas. I'm not able to pick up Kate. He's there by himself at school. I need you to come get me. So my wife had to come get me, pick me up. Take me to pick up Kate, get me a gas, to get, get me some gas so we can get, 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 a tank, get, get, get a jug and get gas in the, in the jug so I can get in the car and get to the gas station. And, and my kids, because of all this, they're deeply wounded. My kids now look at the gas tank and they'll tell Tiffany, they'll go, Mommy, Mommy, we're almost out of gas. We're almost out of gas. They're, they're terrified, folks. 
and they see cars on the side of the road, they must be out of gas. They're out of gas. I mean, they're wounded. And I'm telling you, cars don't run without gas. You can pray over them. You can rebuke the devil. You can quote scripture. You can rub on it, but it won't run. I tried it. It won't run. You got to have gas in the tank. And marriages work the same way. You can rebuke the devil. You can pray. You can quote scripture. But if you're not meeting your spouse's needs, if you're not putting gas in the gas tank, if you're not meeting their, their love language, the marriage begins to drift. The marriage doesn't run properly. The marriage doesn't function properly. You see, you put gas on a car and you fill that car all the way up with gas. You can go a long ways in that car. You can go to a whole other state in that car because the tank is full of gas. It's the same way with your marriage. When you're filling up your spouse, you're meeting their love language, you're filling their love tank up full of gas, that marriage can go, it can thrive. Great marriages are not focused just on me, myself, and I. Great marriages, each spouse focuses on one another's needs and they make sure the love tank is full. Number two is this. Number two is this. There's a, a, a second key to making the makings of a great marriage. Number two is be committed through good and bad times. Through good and bad times. You have to be committed to maintaining a great marriage during good times. During good times. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse number, and verse number one, it says the wise woman builds her house. But with her own hands, the foolish one tears hers down. And friends, hear me today. During good times, be careful not to tear your house down with your own hands. It happens so frequently. During good times, a, a husband or a wife, and sometimes not even knowingly, they begin to tear down their own house, tear down their own marriage with their own hands. I, I see it all the time. You do too. A husband or a wife starts chasing the career goals. I mean, we ought to have goals. We ought to work hard. We ought to be driven. But if you're not careful, you start chasing that and putting your marriage on the back burner. And the next thing you know, your, your, your spouse feels neglected. There's no connection. There, there's no relationship. It's not, it's not going well. There's no communication. And you're tearing down your house with your your own hands. I mean, things were going good. I mean, things were going smooth. You got married and you were coasting and you were gone. And, and then you start at this, what I call marital drift. Maybe you start chasing after hobbies and friendships and, and the relationship with your spouse gets on the back burner and there's, there's marital drift and, and you're tearing down your house with your own hands. This happens all the time, all the time, all the time. I call it a kid-centric home where the wife or the husband turns all their attention on the kids. And they begin to neglect their spouse. And the kids become the number one priority in the home. And there's no longer nurturing the marriage relationship. And, and you're tearing down your house with your own hands. You see, I, I believe in my kids. I love my kids. I invest in my kids. My wife and I, we spend a, a lot of time with our kids. I mean, we, we cherish them. But the number one relationship in our home is our marriage to one another, not the kids. Because here's the deal. I'm raising my kids to leave. My kids not going to live with me when they're 40. They're going to be gone. So I'm raising them to leave, to go be their own man, to be their own woman. But Tiffany going to stay. You see what I'm saying? 
And so when you go, mama staying. And I want to know mama when you gone. And the Bible says the wise person, the wise woman, that when times are good, she's still focusing on building her house. But, 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 the, but another woman, she's foolish, and she tears down her house, his house, with her own hands. You got to be committed to maintaining a great marriage during good times. There's a second thing that I want you to see, and that you have to be committed to maintaining a great marriage or working on your marriage during bad times. You got to be committed, committed during bad times. And for the next few moments, I want to talk to you about a marriage in the Bible that went through a lot of bad times, but they stayed committed. I want to talk to you for the next few moments about Abraham and Sarah. And I want to kind of unfold the difficulties they had in their marriage. First, and I'm going to give you a lot of scripture here. You can try to jot it down. If not, you can get online and watch the message this week and get all the scripture. But Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4, you find their confusion. Confusion. You see, Abraham and Sarah left their homeland. And they were following God and they were going to a place where they didn't know where they were going. <laughs> they had no idea where they were going. I mean, can you imagine the conversation? Uh, Sarah says to Abraham, Abraham, where, where are we going? We're leaving our family, our friends, our home? I don't know, baby, but God spoke to me. Are you sure, Abraham? I'm positive. Okay, so we're going to a place, but we don't know where we're going, right? And God said go. Yeah, that's right, baby. And here's, here's what's funny to me. I, I never caught this before, but it made me laugh as I was studying over the last couple of weeks for this, for this message. In just six verses later in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10, we see a financial storm, a financial storm. They were now going through a famine in that land. Can you imagine the conversation? Just six verses later, Sarah says, now, baby, I thought you said we heard from God. Huh? Are you sure? Because I don't know how we're going to feed. I don't know how we're going to eat. I don't know how we're going to survive. Here we, you got us out here. We left. We don't know where we're going. And now there's a famine. And the Bible says they had to go to Egypt. And when they got to Egypt, we see the third storm. So we see confusion. We see a financial storm. They don't know how they're going to eat and survive because there's a famine in the land. And then in Genesis chapter 12, verse 11 through 13, we see an integrity problem. You see, they get to Egypt and, and, and Abraham tells Sarah, Sarah, you're so beautiful that if the Egyptians find out that I'm married to you, they will kill me. So he said, tell them you're my sister. And so that's what Sarah does. She tells them she's his, his sister. I mean, now we got integrity problems. We got, we got lying. Some of y'all think y'all got problems? Amen. How about Abraham and Sarah? Struggles, difficulty. And then we get to the next problem. Now they're in Egypt. They tell the lie. And in Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 19... Sarah gets, she's married to Pharaoh, and she's laying in a king's bed because they lied and said that was their sister, his sister. Can you imagine the conversation? The Bible says they end up finding out the truth because God sent a curse upon Pharaoh's house because he took Sarah as his wife. But can you imagine when Sarah left the palace and got back with Abraham? Abraham, why did you let it go that far? You should have died and just told him I was, I was your wife. I can't believe you let me marry him. And can you hear Abraham? Now, baby, did you and Pharaoh do? Talk to me, baby. Now, the Bible doesn't give us all the details there. But you can imagine 
the conversation because there's trouble, there's trouble, there's trouble, there's trouble. We see more trouble in, 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 in Genesis chapter Number uh, 16 in verse number 1, we see family and faith trouble. Sarah couldn't get pregnant. God promised them a child. He told them to leave their country, and, and now she can't get pregnant by, by Abraham. And, 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 and in some marriages, that's a sore spot. They can't have kids. I can only imagine the conversations around that. The faith struggle saying, God spoke to us. He told us to leave. God, are you there? God, where are you? God, I thought you said, God, I don't see where you are in our marriage, in this relationship. I don't see your hand. Trouble. Trouble. Then we see in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1 through 4, that Abraham was unfaithful to Sarah. Sarah told Abraham to be intimate with a lady called Hagar. And husbands, I've said this before as I've taught God's word, but if your wife ever tells you to be with another woman, how many know she's she's losing her mind up in here, up in here? You know what I'm saying? So something's wrong. Something's went haywire. But Abraham went and slept with Sarah, uh, excuse me, with Hagar, and Hagar got pregnant. And in Genesis chapter 16, verse 4 through 6, Hagar had resentment in her heart. Towards Hagar, I mean, to, toward, to, to, towards Sarah. She can't believe Sarah told her husband to do this, and she got pregnant by her husband, and she's, she's mad at Sarah. Now Sarah gets mad at Abraham and says, Abraham, why did you do it? You caused all these problems. I mean, Abraham, I was just joking when I said to do that. And now there's resentment in the marriage behind this. And then we see, see another problem in Genesis chapter 16 and verse 16. There was the waiting and frustration game. You, you, you see, in, in Abraham, he had a son born to him named Ishmael by this Hagar lady when he was 86 years old. And 14 years went by and there was no child for Sarah. No child. Can you imagine the frustration? 14 years watching this other baby grow up in your house and God promised you a baby and watching this. And can you imagine the feelings, the tension, the conversation? Abraham, why are you favoring? What's the deal? You act like you love Hagar. I thought you loved. Can you imagine? 14 years of waiting for God to show up in your situation. And what I love about this story is Abraham and Sarah stayed committed to their marriage in spite of all the bad times. They stayed committed, and God blessed them because of their commitment. Let me show this to you. Genesis 21, verse 1 through 2 says, Now the Lord was gracious. Everybody shout gracious. I love that. How many of you love God's grace? That he gives you what you don't deserve. That's what great grace, his unmerited favor, that he gives you what you don't deserve. Yes, Abraham, you messed up. Sarah, you messed up. You've been unfaithful. You have lied. You've resented one another. You pointed the finger at one another. But the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham. I like that. Bore a son to Abraham. It didn't say that they split up and she bore a son to Adam or Tony or Tim, or Leo, or Fred. They stayed committed through thick and thin, through bad times, and she bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Genesis 21, verse 5 through 7. Abraham was a 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me left, and I still praise God. I'm still serving God. I threw it all. I'm focused on God. God has brought me left. God has done this. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said, who would have even thought that Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? I wouldn't have thought it. With all you've been through, all the chaos, the pain, the hurt, the difficulty, the unfaithfulness, I would have never thought you would have this child. 
but you stayed committed. She says, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And God blessed Abraham and Sarah because they stayed committed to one another during difficult times. It reminds me of Genesis, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. It says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Marriage isn't easy. There will be difficult seasons. There will be challenges. But great marriages stay committed. Great marriages last the test of time. They stay committed. I want to talk to some folks for a couple of minutes. Don't grow weary in well-doing. I know there's confusion and there's financial struggle, maybe unfaithfulness, maybe lying, integrity problems, maybe a lot of difficulty, but don't grow weary in well-doing because the Bible says in due season, you'll reap a harvest. If you faint not, stay committed. Come on, keep doing good. Keep loving. Keep forgiving. Keep working on your marriage. And just like Abraham and Sarah, God will pour his blessings out because you stay committed to your marriage. Number three is this. There's a third thing. There's a third thing. There's a third thing. Keep the excitement alive in your marriage. Keep the excitement alive in your marriage. It's the makings of a great marriage. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 18 and 19 says, May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice. Everybody shout rejoice. I like that. I like that. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Just two things I want to point out here. Keep the excitement alive to be together, to be together. Rejoice in the wife. Rejoice in the husband of your youth. Rejoice. Stay excited. Can I tell you, I want to say to married couples in this place, some of you have drifted. You feel like you're falling out of love. You're no longer best friends. Listen, go back and do the things that you used to do. Whatever you used to do to make them happy, you got to start doing to keep them happy. And so go back. Come on, be best friends again. Start hanging out together again. Start doing some fun stuff together again. Well, we don't have anything in common. Oh, find something. Come on. Come on, compromise. You go to the ballet, to the opera, to the play, and then you go to the basketball game with him. I mean, come on, compromise. And start working on this thing. Start being, go on dates again together. Not with other couples. Not with the kids. That's not no date. That's work with the kids. That's work with other couples. That's work. Go with each other and hang out and talk and, 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 and keep the excitement alive in your marriage. Herbert, I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like it. Do it by faith and feelings will follow. There's a second nugget I want to tell you, and that's keep the romantic excitement alive, the romantic excitement alive. Verse 19 says, may her breast satisfy you always. Man, keep your romantic life alive. Hold hands, hug, kiss. Brush your teeth every once in a while so y'all can kiss. Amen. Come on now. Come on, don't wear a moo-moo to bed every night. Come on now, sister, come on. Get something else to wear to bed every once in a while. Come on now. Come on, brothers, light a candle every once in a while. Run her some hot bath water. Some, put some bubbles in it. Come on, keep the romance. Keep the romance. The Bible says, may her breast satisfy you always. Not while you're in your 20s. Always. Well, I'm preaching in here today, amen. <laughs> number four, number four, number four, number four, number four, the makings of a great marriage. Here's the key. 
Here's the foundation for it all. Keep God at the center of your marriage. At the center of your marriage. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 12. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A court of three. Husband, wife, God. Court of three strands is not quickly broken. And, and I believe this. As I studied the scriptures in Abraham and Sarah's life, one of the keys to Abraham and Sarah staying together during the good times and during the very difficult bad times is they kept a relationship alive with God. I mean, you, I encourage you to read their story, Genesis 12, to start reading through all the, their life and their story. You'll find so many times throughout their life they're talking about God. God said, God promised, we're, we're, we're depending on God, we're trusting God, we're having faith in God. I mean, all throughout, I mean, all the pain, all the lying, all the confusion, all the unfaithfulness, somehow they kept their relationship alive with God. And I believe that was, that was the major key to them lasting and their marriage making it and their marriage making it for the long haul is they kept their faith in God. And I want to say to some people in this place today, husbands, man, be a man of God. Trust God. Lean on God. Lead your family spiritually. Be in the house of God. Be a man of prayer. Be a man in God's word. The best thing you could do for, for, for your marriage and your family is, is fall in love with Jesus. Stay in love with Jesus. The best thing I could ever tell a wife to do, because when people come and they got problems and they got chaos, there's selfishness, there's junk, and there's sin, and it's me, it's all about me. Man, focus on Jesus. Fall in love with Jesus again. He'll help you to forgive. He's a restorer. Come on, he can take your misery and turn it into a miracle. He can take your mess and turn it into a miracle. He can take your ashes and turn it into beauty. If you put him at the center. 